Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to a conversation on readiness with the Secretary of the Air Force. Please welcome our host, John J.V. Venable, the Heritage Foundation Senior Research Fellow for Defense Policy in the Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. It is a great place to be on this Wednesday morning, and I see some really wonderfully familiar faces in the audience, and I'm grateful that you're here. For those of you who are streaming uh, online, uh, thank you for joining us. You're in for a treat today. We have the 26th Secretary of the Air Force, uh, Secretary Frank Kendall. Um, he has got an extraordinary background, aside from the fact that I believe he's a West Point graduate, which I'm going to try not to hold against him in the conversation. Um, he uh, served uh, honorably in the United States Army uh, as an infantryman in the Acquisition Corps uh, during the Cold War in the in 1980s when we were both on the ground there. Uh, his uh, career beyond just skyrocketed, his experience in the acquisition world uh, inside of OSD, and then on into the uh, industrial base uh, himself as a, as a senior executive, uh, gave him a great foundation for where he is right now. It is my pleasure to introduce uh, Secretary Frank Kendall to you all, ladies and gentlemen. Would you give him a warm welcome? It is a great pleasure to be uh, free to have you here and uh, to be in this room full of uh, smiling faces. Uh, I don't think you can see this at home, but these folks are really good looking in the audience. And I, um, uh, some of them have masks on, but you can see they're striking even beyond that. Um, and for you, sir, um, I'd just like to give you a warm welcome. You've been in the job for a little a year, year and a half. Almost a year. And, uh, and what you've been uh, up against and what you've waded into is quite significant. And I would love to hear your thoughts on uh, where, where the service is right now and what you're thinking. Sure. Uh, JV mentioned my Cold War experience. It's very relevant to why I'm back in, in government again. Um, I, I came back for one fundamental reason, China, China, China. Uh, I became concerned about China's military modernization program uh, in 2010 when I came back previously to work in the acquisition part of the Department of Defense in the Secretary of Defense's office. And what I saw that China was doing uh, was developing and fueling capability to attempt to defeat the American ability to project power into their region. Uh, I was in the Pentagon for an earlier tour for the first Gulf War. And the United States demonstrated a dramatic improvement uh, in conventional warfighting capability, unlike anything anybody had seen before, and frankly, unlike what we actually expected in the first Gulf War. We, we were talking about 10 or 20,000 casualties, and we had a few hundred. And we demonstrated through a mix of precision munitions, uh, stealth was introduced, wide area surveillance systems like JSTARs, networked capabilities, that uh, we had a, a fundamental and profound advantage in, in conventional warfare over a traditional Soviet-style military that was reasonably modern at the time. Uh, nobody paid more attention to that than the Chinese. And there was a big reaction afterwards. There was a big reaction within the US, too, uh, about where we were headed and how that was all you know, enabling us. And, and there was an impression created, I think, 
in the U.S. that this level of dominance was going to be the norm going forward. But people react to what you do. And nobody looked at what we did more or reacted more strongly than the Chinese. I left the government at that point in 1994. And I remember my intelligence people saying at the time, that China's not very capable right now, but if you come back in 15 or 20 years because of the way their economy's growing, they could be much more capable. And I came back in 15 or 20, 20 years, 16 to be exact, and they were much more capable. And they were being capable, becoming capable in a way which was very focused. It was on uh, what we used to call access, air, air denial, access denial. Area A2AC, it's an acronym that escapes me now. But anyway, it was there to keep us out of the region. And as time went on, they were extending those capabilities and extending the range at which they could keep us out. I, I briefed Susan Rice once when she was National Security Advisor. And my summary of this to her was that the US is the dominant power on the planet until you get within about 1,000 miles of China. And then it starts to change. And what I've seen since I came back this time is more of the same. Uh, China is not just uh, trying to develop the capability to defeat the things we have today. It's thinking about the things they, they expect us to have tomorrow and, and working on things that would defeat those systems. So some of the things they're doing, like hypersonics, which gets a lot of attention. The, uh, uh, the, 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 the very large inventory they have of conventional crews and ballistic missiles is, is so significant that they have a pretty good potential to overwhelm us in any event, even without hypersonics. But they're feeling hypersonics because they anticipate us reacting to them, uh, and because of the target set that we present to them, too, as well. So we have a big problem. Uh, we, we People serving today, including chiefs of staff of the services, have very little experience, if any, with a pure competitor who is engaged in a race for technological superiority militarily, like we are now in with China in particular. You can say that Russia has, is, a, is a competitor as well. Uh, but we are just seeing a very visible demonstration of a couple of things that should get our attention. One is the willingness of a great power to, to, take and, uh, to perform an aggressive act, to do an unprovoked act of aggression against a neighbor. But another is that the Russian military is much less capable than people would have expected it to be. So of the two uh, competitors, you know, we refer to China is a pacing challenge, which I think is very apt. We talk about Russia as an acute threat because of its propensity to aggression. Um, to give you a, a factoid that kind of puts us in context, I think, pretty easily, the de Defense Department's budget request this year is about $770 billion. That's about half the GDP of Russia, half the entire Russian economy. It's less than 5% of the GDP of China. So the two are not really comparable from the point of view of their ability to sustain any kind of a military, and, and, uh, but they're both dangerous. Uh, we have to worry about both of them, as well as some more traditional threats in the, in the modern era. But the pacing challenge is clearly China, and their modernization program, well, about which they have been very strategic, is clearly focused on uh, convincing us not to, not to participate in the region. It's taken the form of attacking, building the capabilities to attack our high-value assets. Satellites. Uh, certainly, of which we have, we have operated relatively with relative impunity in space for a long time. Uh, we didn't have complete impunity during the Cold War, but since then, we, we've been able to operate that way. Uh, they have a full spectrum of uh, capabilities designed to come after our satellite systems. Uh, aircraft carriers are a particularly important target because of their role in projecting power. And forward air bases are another one, as well as some logistics and command control nodes. So when you can't add all those up, you get a few tens of targets, basically, that uh, our adversary potentially has to worry about. 
and they've set out to attack, uh, to first target and then to attack those targets with a pretty sizable inventory. And that's what we're reacting to. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a position that I think is more significant uh, than anything I saw in the Cold War. We had a pretty formidable opponent in the Cold War. Uh, they were, they lacked a lot of our manufacturing capabilities. They had pretty good engineers, the Soviets I'm talking about. And the scenario we were worried about was an invasion of, of Europe. Uh, I served back in the Cold War, as uh, J.B. mentioned, on, in the Army on the border the, uh, when there was still a divided Germany uh, as an air defense officer. The, uh, the, that was a pretty significant problem at the time. It was a problem largely of mass. Uh, and it was a problem which we had a very strong deterrent capability Starting with a force in place, it was pretty significant, a larger force that would deploy very quickly. Uh, and then if things did not go well, the possibility of tactical nuclear weapons is an escalation step. You get a very different situation with regard to aggression by China. So I, and when I look again at the two, Russia versus China, NATO is showing its, its strength and resilience right now. It's expanding. Uh, and it's been very united against this act of aggression. But when I look at the Western Pacific, it's a very different situation geographically geopolitically. We have strong allies out there. That's very important. Uh, but it's a, it's, it's a long way away. It's a very difficult area in which to project power. And we don't have some of the same situations that I mentioned and that we had back in the area of the, so era of the Soviets. So what am I doing about all that? Um, I am uh, engaged in a number of activities. There, the, the rubric I'm using for them is operational imperatives. I have seven. Uh, it's interesting to me how I formulated this list last fall as a, as a way to kind of guide some operational analysis that I wanted to have done to, to identify investments that we need to make in our budget, uh, particularly in 24. And they sort of caught on. Everybody's talking about my operational prayers now, which is kind of interesting. The, the funny part of that is that I, I, I didn't do this, but somebody else numbered them. And after they were numbered by the staff and everybody was walking around talking about OI2 and OI3 and OI6, um, I changed the order. And it completely messed up the staff. They, I don't think they've forgiven me for that yet. But in any event, um, the seven are, in a logical order, the things that I think we have to be able to do successfully to be successful at projecting power in the Western Pacific. It starts with getting our space order battle right. And that's largely about resiliency. Uh, the Space Force has to protect the Joint Force. So it has to also provide services to the Joint Force. Uh, those services include you know, navigation services, timing, they include uh, communications, missile warning, and together with the intelligence community, ISR and targeting of, of, of threat systems. Uh, the, the Space Force also has the role of protecting the joint force from observation and targeting by the adversary systems. So it's both an offensive and defensive side to the, the space war battle that we need to field. The, 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 the moving in this direction actually started during the Obama administration. We changed our strategy then in recognition of what was going on uh, with regard to anti-satellite capabilities that were being filled by Russia and China. And we had started the process of identifying what were the right things to field in, re in reaction to that. Uh, more progress was made in the previous administration. I'm very happy with what Jay Raymond and his team have, have done, but we still have a lot more work to do there. And we have a lot of work in particular to do with the intelligence community to get all that right. And we have to sort through what we need to counter the adversary's capabilities in space. So that's number one, my operational imperatives. Uh, the next one is about battle management and C3, and you've all heard a lot about JADC squared over the last few years and for the Air Force Advanced Battle Management System. My observation there is that we need to be much more focused on operational return on investment. And what do we actually need to do to get better decisions that matter that give us better outcomes? 
and what information is needed to support those decisions, and how do we bring it together and in a timely way and present it to the operators who are gonna to have to make those decisions. So focusing ABMS, but beyond that, as I've discovered since I came back in the government, we really need to do more to modernize our C3 systems in general. We have a lot of relatively old systems. Link 16 is a good example. And we have to move into the next generation capabilities. Uh, the threat, again, is, is paying a lot of attention to what we have in the field and trying to design against us. We have to respond to that. So the next one is getting C3 battle management right. Um, the C3 battle management capabilities start with the ability to target. Uh, so we're looking at both space-based and airborne targeting systems. Uh, there's a preference for space because of the, the virtues of something that is essentially global and can be made fairly resilient and, and has good technical capabilities as well. Uh, but some jobs are relatively hard to do technically from space. So we're gonna have a mix of space and airborne capabilities, which also presents a, a tougher problem to the adversary. And we just started to buy the E7. We just announced that we're gonna do that to replace AWACS. We have both air and ground moving target, and ground includes maritime targets that we wanna be able to access. And the whole C3 battle management system I mentioned is, is designed to process those targets as, as efficiently as possible. So whatever advantages we get out of C3 battle management are dependent upon our ability to target. The next thing on the list is the tactical air part of our, our capability. Uh, I started a program when I was in the acquisition job called Next Generation Air Dominance. Uh, it was a prototyping program, it was an explain program, it's classified, I can't say much about it. We put it on contract in about 2015, if I remember right. And so we have moved the technologies for the next generation of dominance forward through that program to where we can go on and, and do a platform. But it's not just about a platform. It's about what we call a family of systems that are associated with tactical air. Part of that family of systems is going to be uncrewed combat aircraft. And we're gonna introduce those, and one way to think about it is the combination of uh, manned aircraft with some number, let's just say nominally four or five, uncrewed combat aircraft that are controlled by that manned aircraft and used together as an operational formation, essentially. So we're gonna go in that direction. There's a lot of evidence out there that this can be done. Um, programs like DARPA's ACE program, like the Loyal Wingman program in, in Australia that's been done, and Skyborg within the Air Force. So we're gonna move in that direction and. What we're designing there, as you will, is the manned platform as well as the uncrewed combat aircraft, the communications and the sensors and the weapons that kind of go into that mix. Mr. Secretary, can I ask you about that program? In a minute. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let me, let me, I'm on number four, there's three to go. Well, right. that would, that will do it. I'll stop. The, uh, uh, so that family of systems is, is number four. Um, number five is resilient basing. We, the, our technical air force is dependent upon fixed runways, you know, fixed installations generally. Those are all very targetable. Uh, with, a, with a mix of cruise and ballistic missiles derived, derived, you know, delivered by various means. So the mix of hardening, deception, defense, et cetera, that we need to optimally defend those, those bases and to create alternative bases that we can operate from is next on the list. If we can't get that one to work, we have a big problem uh, with our tactical air forces in general. Okay, the next one on the list is uh, a similar concept to the NGAD concept, the family of systems for long range strike. We're introducing the B-21, it's going into production. It's another program that started when I was in office before. Uh, and, and it's doing reasonably well in development. Um, and we're headed to production on that. But again, an expensive aircraft. One of the problems I'm dealing with here is that all the things we happen to be buying right now or plan to buy in the near future that are manned platforms are very expensive. F-35 and F-15EX cost about the same. 
uh, and GAV will cost much more than that, and the B-21 will cost even more than that. So to have an affordable Air Force of any reasonable size, we've got to introduce some lower-cost platforms. So the uncrewed combat aircraft I talked about to be accompanied by either NGAT or F-35, as well as uh, an uncrewed combat aircraft that can work with the B-21 and a family of systems approach are, are the direction we're trying to go in. Then the last thing on my list is paying attention to all the things we count on to go to war. And this is in particular a cybersecurity problem. It's the you know, personnel system, the transportation system, logistics systems, the, the business system, things that pay people, uh, the medical system, all the things that we have to have work in order to get people into the fight. And there's some physical things here we have to protect and harden, as well as a lot of information systems. We have to make sure adequately hardened. So the seven, uh, work's been going on on these for about six months now, a little longer. Uh, and it's kind of come to the point where we're ready to put a lot of things into the 24 Palm and go you know, argue for getting funded. So what I've told the Congress with the budget we submitted in 23 is that we have a reasonable balance. We have a reasonable balance between the support the Air Force is providing and the Space Force are providing the combatant commanders now and investments in the future. And I use the word transformation. We need a transformation. We need to get to a next generation of capabilities. And the, the efforts I just described are intended to help us, help us do that. Um, so we've got a down payment on that transformation. And under any conceivable budget, there are hard choices ahead. We're going to have to do, uh, make a, uh, invest in a lot of things to change uh, the nature of the force and the way it's equipped, and also consistent with that, how we use the force, how it fights, how it gets, to, gets into the fight. Uh, so there's a lot going on. Uh, it's, we're on the earlier stages. As far as the Space and Air Force are both concerned, I think we've made a really good start, but there's a long way to go. Okay, Thanks. now you can ask. Thank you, you for that synopsis, and I apologize for interrupting. No problem. I've got a couple of uh, slides to run through so the audience can keep up with us. Um, capacity has really dropped since the, the Cold War. When uh, we were in the Europe in the, the 1980s, we had an, an, a very robust force. Mm -hmm. And today, we're about uh, a little bit less than half that size. And just focusing on those two areas right there, you see we had about 4,400 fighters in the inventory uh, back during the Cold War. That's uh, all uh, total aircraft inventory, uh, active Air National Guard and Reserve. Uh, today we've got just a little bit over 2,000. Tanker-wise, we're about 480 today, and we had only order of 780 back then. And then bombers, we had twice as many bombers back then as we do today. And so thinking about this and what the, the Cold War uh, demanded back in that day and what we may be looking for in the next um, pure competitor fight, uh, the Air Force has done many studies since it uh, put out the Air Force we need, but this is the only one that was published, and it showed uh, several shortfalls in those four areas. And if you were to pair the fighters, the airlift, uh, the tanker, and uh, the bomber uh, shortfalls, you can see the numbers of aircraft there in red, 15 airlifters, um, 75 bombers, 182 fighters, and then uh, uh, many more tankers. Um, and so when we start going down the path of that, you have fourth generation, you have fifth generation uh, thought processes. But just looking at the capacity today, if we were to add all of that in with uh, the, the Air Force we need, it would bring us up to around 2,200 fighters. You're having to make some significant cuts right now um, in force structure and capacity 
in order to field those future, uh, those future platforms. You talked about NGAD and funding for it starting around 2015, if I heard that right. Um, it takes um, the best of systems since the F-16 and the F-15 were fielded way back in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s. It takes about um, 17 to 22 years to field a new platform, as best as we can try to force it through. And so when you're looking- I take issue with that, but we can get to that later. And, and My so, turn to interrupt you. And so that's, I think, is a, is a, is a great point uh, of departure. When you look at the capacity and you think about where we are today, it's more like 2,000 fighters, but in order to make um, the, the, the funding come out right, um, we're looking on the order, uh, as I understand it, of a net cut of 400 fighters over the course of the next five years. Um, so that'll bring us in a capacity that's significantly lower than where we are today. That's about a, uh, it's about a, a 20% cut uh, is that right? About a 20% cut from where we are, 15 to 20. And so when you think about um, the fielding of the next system to replace those fighters and the fielding of the B-21, could you talk to me about your concerns, um, where the gap might be in, in our capacity between now and when we need to have that peer, peer competitor fight? Truth is, I'm much less worried about capacity numbers than I am about capability. Um, I was there for the drawdown after the Cold War. I was the Deputy Director of Defense Research and Engineering for Tactical Warfare Programs. And basically the threat went away and so did a large hunk of our force structure, I think a third to a half in some cases. Um, and we've, we've used various force sizing constructs. It's a, uh, for a lot of, long time we used the two major contingencies as the force sizing construct. The, um, uh, the new defense strategy, which is not public it's been summarized, you know, focuses on the pacing challenge and also talks about Russia. Uh, we're living in a different world now in a lot of ways. And I, I think we have to be very careful about the idea that hanging on to what I'm going to call legacy equipment is the right thing to do. Uh, and I would say the same thing about buying more, what is essentially legacy equipment. We have an affordability problem for sure. Uh, and I think the way to get at that is to start to buy some things that cost less. Um, and I mentioned that, you know, the 80 plus million dollars for an F-35, 80 plus million dollars for an F-15EX, quite a bit more than that for an NGAD, and multiple hundreds of millions for a, for a B-21. If that's what we're going to try to equip the fleet with and get the kinds of numbers you're talking about, it's not going to happen with any foreseeable budget. And I'm not sure that's the right approach in any event. The, I mean, I date back long enough to at least known people who were there when the F-16 you know, F-15 mix was, was, was initially bought. It was a sound concept, but it was, it was uh, you know, again, for, for a different area. I actually had, I was laughing at one of your numbers you put up. I had experience when I was in government before, I think this was about 2016, when one of the service chiefs came into my office, and I won't say who it was, but you could probably do the math and figure it out. Um, and he said, you know, the other services have announced this number as their target. And I don't have a number. I'm okay where I am but I'm gonna to have to put one up on the table too because everybody has to have a number that they go rally everybody around. Again, I think we have to worry about capability. And what we need to do is get to the next generation. The uh, part of my history, uh, one of my people I admire most in the world is Bill Perry, who was Secretary of Defense uh, you know, uh, right after the Cold War. But before that, he was Director of Defense Research and Engineering in the 70s. 
and I've talked to Bill about this, he consciously invested in R&D, and then again, this is post-Vietnam, right? So it was a very difficult era. We were turning our attention back to Soviet Union as the, as the, as the pacing challenge of that time. And Bill felt that we had to get to a next generation of capability. So he invested in a lot of R&D for systems that at the time he knew the budgets at that level couldn't, couldn't pay for. Uh, what happened was Ronald Reagan, and we got the big defense production buildup, came in the 80s, right, that you remember. And so we, we went through, as part of the cost of getting those systems, we had a readiness crisis in the 70s, which was a huge deal. I was in the field in Germany at that time. We couldn't get a part to save our lives. So we made trade-offs then. Bill consciously prioritized investment in uh, uh, new technology and new capabilities, and it paid off enormously. It got us the force that we took to the first Gulf War. It got us the force that you know, intimidated the Russians uh, and, and helped the Cold War end. Uh, Bill, when he was Secretary of Defense, kind of did the same thing. He, he, he kept, we, we, we basically, uh, post-Cold War, kept programs like F-22, Seawolf uh, Submarine, uh, you know, a few others I could name. And we didn't get Ronald Reagan. And we got very small numbers. B-2 is another one. We got very small numbers of those platforms. And I think, looking back in retrospect, we'd have been better off if we had gotten more of those and, and had them for that intervening period. Now, we, now we're in a situation where I think we actually need to move to the next generation and get on with that. F-35 is part of that, as a fifth generation aircraft. It's the best fighter out there, but it's an expensive fighter. And I think that the technologies are enabling us to do some new and different things that are very creative. One of the things I observe about the Chinese is that they are unconfined by culture, by uh, service rivalries, things like that, they seem to be very able to make centralized strategic decisions about investments. And to give you a feel for that, they decided after the first Gulf War, uh, about 20 years ago, that they were gonna dramatically reduce the size of their army. They had a large, huge, primitive army. And they, they shrunk it by something like 70%. And they, and they increased the funding for their air and naval forces, but they also created the strategic rocket forces, which are the mix of nuclear and conventional rockets that they have, which are the ones that are targeting our airfields and, and those other things, such as our carriers, terrestrial targets that are of high value for them. And they also created their information warfare, their, their strategic support force. So they created two new services. So we created the Space Force just recently, right? So they have organized themselves and they have equipped themselves for what they see as the future of warfare, and they're not stopping. Uh, they're looking ahead, and what I'm seeing from the intelligence I get is that, they're, they're, again, they're not just worried about what we have now, what we have, what is clearly in our pipeline. They're thinking about how they're going to defeat the thing after that. So we are in a, in a race for technological superiority. I don't think we're in a race for quantity as much. Uh, we're not trying to build more dreadnoughts than the other guy. Uh, it's a different kind of a competition we're in right now. A reporter asked me a few months ago about it whether I thought we were an arms race, and I said yes, but I meant it in that context, a race for technological superiority. And I think winning that is going to be what is going to really intimidate China going forward. My, you mentioned, uh, JV, the time it takes to do acquisition. The data shows, and I used to publish annual reports on this, our average acquisition program takes just under seven years to field. That's from the time you start EMD to the time you have IOC, basically. Uh, the F-15, F-35, rather, is used as an example all the time. It is a dramatic outlier in how long it takes us to field things. 
And what I, what I have told my people on the acquisition side, and I try not to do my old job and my new job, but I can't help it sometimes, I want them to structure programs to get meaningful military effort, uh, uh, capabilities as quickly as possible. So I'm, I'm not interested in demos and experiments unless they are a necessary step on the road to real capability. Because what we, what we tend to do is do a quick demo, and then we have to start an EMD or development program and wait several more years because we didn't start the development production. If we don't need it to reduce risk, we should go right to development for production and get there as quickly as we can. If, if the risk is high and we need to do some things just to be prudent to address that risk first, we should do that as, in a focused, efficient way and then get on with. And then and another factor, of course, is concurrency and how much you overlap development with production. Um, I have a sense of urgency about getting new capabilities, and I'm willing to take some risk there. I'm willing to take some risk in committing to uh, uncrewed combat aircraft as part of the force mix. Is I think there's enough maturity in the technology now from things that we've seen done that we can do that. So anyway, the, the, the point of all this is that we need to think about capability, not just capacity. Uh, and I, I'm in a running battle with the Congress, which, by the way, I really appreciate what they did last year. They gave us a lot of support on retiring some of our some of our older aircraft so that we could free up resources to do some of the modernization I've been talking about. We're going to have to continue down that path. There, there's a perception that we're creating a gap. The gap exists today. The gap is the gap between the capabilities we have today and what the adversary is feeling. And by having more of the things that aren't adequate today and using resources for those as opposed to getting onto things we need to close that gap, we're making, that would be a mistake. Okay? We've got to get to the future and we've got to get there as quickly as we can. Interesting statistic. Seven years uh, from. Yeah, I can point you to the report if you like. It's so, if common misperception. If we go back to fielding or the the funding of 2015 for MGAD, in theory, it should be hitting the street pretty soon. Um, we can't talk about the numbers on that, but uh, and if you, what we did was not an EMD program. What we did was a prototype, experimental prototype. Yep. So we basically did an X-plane program which was designed to reduce the risk in some of the key technologies that we would need in the production program. We have now started on the EMD program to do the development aircraft that we're going to take into production. So the clock really started, didn't start in, in, in 2015. It started, you know, it's starting roughly now. So seven to eight years from now. We think we'll have uh, capability by the end of the decade. Well, this is a, a fascinating thought process, and I completely agree with you. If you go back to the Cold War days, the reason why we developed the F-16, F-15, A-10, and had that technological edge is because we were outnumbered in Europe exactly. significantly. And so we also had the training side where our guys were really leading edge um, uh, across the board. We were just bone crushing. Um, uh, as an aside, I talked to a Polish pilot who flew during the Cold War, and and he, uh, we did a numbers comparison, and when I told him I was getting 250 hours a year, yeah. he said that is not possible because they were getting on the order of 100 and, uh, yeah. to 120. And so this idea of moving into the next generation, I completely agree with you, but sir, I would, I would respectfully uh, challenge the thought process that numbers don't matter. I, I think they do, and, and particularly in a, in a fight with China. Not the numbers that we necessarily have today, but uh, significant numbers to, to face a, an adversary of that time. The question is how do we get the numbers that we need, right? Uh, you're right. I mean, quantity has a quality all of its own, Jack Fetzi quote. Uh, so yes, uh, it, which is why I'm trying to get some elements of the force structure that are not as expensive as the ones we're currently buying. Sure. So uh, moving to tankers now, just real quickly, you can see the numbers that uh, the, the 
Air Force We Need study came out with, it was about 700, 680 tankers. And we had 760 some uh, during at the end of the Cold War. A recent study by an excellent team, um, uh, not too far away from us, came up with the uh, this chart that's here, and it talks about the numbers of tankers that basically the, the 483 fills out. It's hard to see here, but that green area in the middle says it's about 200 tankers that we would need to face a peer competitor. And if you go back to our recent conflicts, uh, Desert Storm, um, all the way to uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Operation Iraqi Freedom, we had a day-to-day -day demand of about 280 tankers for the duration of that fight, which exceeds that number by a significant portion, almost by um, 50%. If you add the yellow portion in above that, that's to deter in a second theater. Um, and that would get us there in a regional contingency like um, Desert Storm or uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, but the logistics and the supply lines and and the lack of basing in the Pacific would give us a much larger demand. KC-46 has had some issues getting fielded. Um, we're looking at the KCY coming to follow up. Mm -hmm. Could you talk to us about what we're looking at numbers-wise and how do we absorb the risk uh, in the chart? We, we, we've got a cap right now, I think 479, and we're going to ask the Congress to let us come down to 455. And we think that's adequate to do, uh, certainly deal with the pacing challenge, but also deal with other things we'd have to do. And we are having to prioritize in the department. We can't do everything all the time. I think given the threats that we face, the idea that we can do, you know, a, a major war and major contingencies simultaneously is a stretch. I don't think it's a lot to ask any power to do, great power or otherwise. The, uh, the demand for tankers is high. Uh, there are threats to the survivability of tankers that we're starting to get more worried about. We are continuing the KC-46. Um, we are going to start to think about what follows that. And we're looking at the, the, the current production KC-46, uh, uh, the current contracts and late in the fit-up. And uh, we're gonna, what we put in our budget this year was to continue to buy them and then assess whether we need to do a competition uh, and that's cost effective or not, or continue to buy more KC-46s. As I've told the Congress, you know, at one time we were pretty confident we're going to do a competition. We're much less confident of that now because of what the requirements seem to be coming out of uh, uh, Air Mobility Command. But there is a question in my mind about what follows that. What is the future going to be? And how do you have a survivable tanker in the future? And what does that look like? And that's sort of an open question we haven't gotten very far on yet. The KC-135s are old. Uh, the 10s are coming out. The, I had a ride on a KC-46 recently, and I get to compare it to a KC-135. It's quite a night and day comparison of aircraft. Um, Boeing has had some difficulties with the KC-46. Uh, they've lost a huge amount of money on, on the program so far, and we're working our way through those. We're now up to supporting about 85% of the aircraft types. We have to refuel, and we have a path, I think, to complete that. So I think that crane, I think, will service reasonably well uh, until we get to whatever the next generation happens to be. I do think that that inventory number that I, that I, I cited will be adequate to meet our, our scenarios that we're most worried about. Interesting. Uh, so let's go into the world of readiness, if I can. Yeah, uh, you step that in, in, in that. Yeah. Uh, so the Russian invasion, you talked about the failures of, of uh, the Russian military going into Ukraine. I, I would imagine that uh, Mr. Putin thought that they were going to do a little bit better than what they, were, what they did, both with maybe what he had been fed as, uh, as the leader from the military saying we're ready to go and against a very 
poor foe, third world, that turned out to be yeah. a very ad great yeah. adversary uh, in the Ukrainians. Uh, back in the day, in the 1980s and the 90s, we had external Air Force IG teams that conducted operational readiness inspections. And they were independent, um, they couldn't be command influenced, and they basically they came in every two years, they evaluated uh, a, a unit's ability to generate, mobilize, deploy, and then employ in a combat scenario. And they were given grades that could actually cause the wing commander to be fired if they performed poorly. I remember that well. Uh, today, <laughs> we have shifted around 2014 or 15 uh, away from ORI teams into squadron commanders evaluating their own units. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, uh, with regard to resources and the training that their units have. And this is a little bit of an eye chart. but. But each of the squadron commanders has the ability to rank C1, C2, C3, C4, meaning C1, they're ready to do any mission, uh, C2, most missions, C3, some missions, and C4, uh, they need more resources. And uh, this uh, idea of sorties and where we are with this, uh, this back in uh, the 1980s through about 2005, pilots, fighter pilots were getting around 13 to 15 sorties a month. Uh, which is more than three times a week. And if you think about where that is, abo above three sorties a week, pilots are getting better at what they're doing. At three sorties, they get to sustain, and below that, they, they start faltering. Uh, eight sorties a month is the number of sorties that's required for an experienced pilot to be considered combat mission capable. And then the lowest tier is called basic uh, mission capable, and that's at five sorties. And if you go back into 2017, um, that year we, we had uh, come out of uh, the BCA, the, the Budget Control Act, sequestration, uh, draconian levels of cuts, and they started to recover, but then in 2017 they started to falter again. And so what you're looking at in, in that uh, far right side is uh, about uh, seven and a half sorties a month per pilot. And when the squadron commanders rated their units at that time, they came up with just four in the United States Combat Air Force active duty that were ready to go for any mission. And then something less than half that were ready to do any other side. And so really low mission capable rates, really low um, training rates. And so now if you look at where we are today, uh, this is the statistics uh, from, from the Air Force. And on the far right side, our fighter pilots, uh, on average, the uh, combat fighter pilots are getting less than five sorties a month. It's about 4.4 sorties a month, which is flying about 1.1 times a week. And that's where you really have a hard time um, doing basic things, remembering switchology. As a fighter pilot, I remember being quite incompetent flying at that rate. I'm sure that today's pilots are much better, but sir, when you think about where we are with the C status, it's hard to imagine that anybody's above the C3 line. And it's really uh, hard to think about how long it will take to recover from that. Could you talk to us about readiness, where you think we are, and what changes need to be made, if any, uh, to the system? You're right that uh, historically, our level of training was a huge advantage going back to the Cold War of the Soviets. And when I was Deputy Director of Defense Research and Engineering, it was something we paid a lot of attention to, uh, quality of the training in particular, things like red flag and green flag and so on, those kind of exercises, which we still do. 
The, the readiness equation is a complicated equation. Part of what you said I don't think is entirely true. Um, units have always self-reported. We used to do that on a monthly basis. We used to have, in my case, ages ago, annual IG reports. IG still does uh, assess units. I've looked at their reports. I've seen what their, what their findings are. I'm not sure we do it with exactly the same frequency, but we still do those assessments. The, the, um, uh, I, I just showed Secretary Austin a chart on numbers of flying hours we're getting, and I showed him something similar to what you had. Here's what's limiting us. We have 30-year-old airplanes on average, and the uh, operational availability of those aircraft is on the order of 60% for the fighter fleet. So just having operational aircraft available for people to go out, and then there's a question of what kind of flying they're doing. You know, the, the type of sortie you do matters just as much as, in fact, maybe more, right, than the numbers that Absolutely. we do. And so for the last 20-odd years, even operationally, our pilots have been flying relatively fairly straightforward, you know, operational profiles, if you will, right? They're going out and delivering weapons and coming back. We, we are doing several things here. One is we're changing our model for how we do this. It will kind of a rotation between levels of capability people get from being fully ready to being in a reset mode to going, you know, we've got a... CQ Brown has come up with this. It's a four-phase system to try to optimize the readiness of the most ready units that we expect to be you know, deployed immediately. The, um, we are funding our, our, our maintenance, our sustainment, to a level that we think is, is about as high as we can afford right now. And so that's, that's a factor. And trying to get the numbers of flying hours that that will support, right? You've got to have the aircraft put the pilot on it. Um, I'm not happy with where we are in terms of number of flying hours. I'm also not happy with where we are in terms of quality. So we are trying to address that. The, um, the other factors, though, that limit it, it's that in, and you, you pointed out where, where this started. It started with sequestration when the Budget Control Act was passed. Yes, and we took a huge hit in readiness across the entire DOD. And we haven't really ever gotten out of that hole. Uh, you know, there was some improvement, uh, but again, trade-offs in the budgets and so on. Uh, so I, I, I agree with you in general, we're not where we are. So we're trying to do some things to get the training advantage through other means like simulation. We, we can do more now with simulation than we used to, putting people in simulators. So we're trying to take advantage of that. We're trying to get to where our, our pilot training, our, it's um, undergraduate pilot training 2.5, I think is what we call it, right? that system. And we're trying to make sure we, we produce pilots more efficiently and they're better pilots when they come out. But maintaining their proficiency is really important. I don't disagree with that at all. No, thank you for that. So uh, between the two of us, we have filibustered much of our time. Um, and uh, I'm going to make room for just a couple of questions uh, from the audience. And so I'll take one, uh, Tom, if you've got one. And then we'll take one from the field. Uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, Stephen Metz asked a question about uh, personnel. And uh, the service personnel uh, leaders testified the other month in front of Congress that 2022 is shaping up to be arguably one of the most difficult years for the all-volunteer force in terms of recruiting. And we also know the uh, Air Force has confronted a shortage of pilots for years now, which maybe was put, you know, in a better place because of COVID. But now that COVID is gone and, the, and all the airline traffic is ramping up again, I'm sure the airlines need pilots. Can you talk about uh, where the Air Force stands in terms of personnel and, in particular, pilots. Thank you. We are having some problems with recruiting. For under COVID, our recruiters couldn't go to high schools. And students weren't in high schools to a large extent, right? So we couldn't have the contact and do the recruiting activities we normally do. 
so that's one factor. Another factor is the economy right now. The demand for people for labor is enormous out there. It's, you know, we're, we're about three something percent uh, unemployment right now. So uh, there have been a number of factors that came together uh, that have hurt recruiting. The Air Force is not in terrible shape for 22. The, uh, I, my colleague, Christine Wormuth in the Army has indicated that they're, they're concerned. We have a pretty significant backlog of people waiting to come in, and we've basically tapped into that. So, but we're looking ahead. We had a meeting with Secretary Austin about this the other day, and they're very actively looking at this. We got a number of things ongoing to try to improve recruiting. I don't, I don't want to wait till the crisis is here next year. I want to address it now uh, in anticipation. So we're trying to do a number of things with bonuses. Uh, we're trying to do a number of things to make it more attractive to people to come into the service. We're doing a lot of outreach. Uh, we're back in the high schools uh, in general. So we're, we're addressing this. And I think, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get through this period um, and, and, and meet our goals. I'm, we're, we're close for 22, but I think we're going to get there. Uh, but 23 looks like it's going to be actually harder than 22 right now. And we're focused on, on doing as much as we can with the lead time that we have to get ready for that. On the pilots specifically, we're actually not short of operational pilots. We're short of rated staff officers. There are a lot of jobs in the Air Force where we want pilots to be in those jobs because of the knowledge they bring. So that's where the shortage manifests itself. We reduced that number by about 300 over the last year or so. The, the gap was about 1,200, if I remember right, and reduced it by about 300. Um, and we're continuing to do a number of things to try to attract people to that. We're looking at bringing you know, people through OTS, Officer Training School, and into a pilot track. We're looking at people who are in other career fields and bringing them in. We're doing a lot of things to outreach again on our recruiting practices in general. I just graduated the Air Force Academy uh, Classic Cadets. We got a lot of new ones uh, coming there, which we always do. It was always gr great to see those young people. If you want to see a bunch of happy people, go to an Academy graduation. <laughs> it's amazing. You, you know what I mean? Get right? them out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> they, I, I talked in my speech about how uh, I knew nobody cared what I was going to say. You just wanted to get your diploma and get out of there. But I introduced Secretary Austin, so he got to do the log speech. I got to do a short one. But it was really fun to get out there, and I got to spend the day talking to professors and cadets out there while I was there. It's, you can all be proud of all those people. You can all be proud in general of the people you have serving your country in uniform, Space Force and Air Force. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a terrific group of people. They're just as patriotic and just as dedicated and just as passionate about what they do as you and I were when we were starting up a million years ago. Anyway, I digress a little from your question. So the pilot question was a really great one, and uh, this is statistics from goes back to 2016. Uh, we had a 2,000 pilot shortage not too long ago. And uh, this last year, uh, in 2021, the Air Force has uh, reduced that to around 1,600 total pilots in the, in the com combined Air Force. Uh, when you think about that, um, it sounds really great, but there was the COVID bump because of retention. Um, people uh, yeah. wanted to stay in the service. The airline shut down, basically, so that people stayed in. Yes, sir. But one of the other effects, this is the fighter pilot chart up here, is you can see that we're about 650 pilots short in the fighter world uh, out of uh, about 3,800. But we're about to, because of uh, COVID uh, uh, folks refusing to take the, the COVID shot, we're going to shed between, uh, estimates vary between 200 and 600 pilots and about 400 uh, to 450 or of those are going to be fighter pilots. Could you talk about the retention aspects, um, how these are meaty folks that we need and 
and, uh, and how the flying hours coupled with uh, this readiness challenge might be a, a drag on retention, sir. I don't know where that number's from. I haven't seen a number on pilots that would, might be processed out because of COVID. Overall, the whole Air Force, which is only a small fraction of its pilots, we processed about 400 people. 399 was the last number I saw. Um, we have a few thousand people who are working their way through the process. We had a very small number of just plain refusers, right? And these are people who just won't obey a lawful order. And it's just not, if you're gonna be in the military, you're gonna have to follow orders. Um, we have some people who I've requested a religious exemption and we're processing those through uh, and, and we're basically, it's a two-step process. One is, is it a well-founded belief that you have? Generally, we're, we're being generous with people on that and in terms of what we're requiring to demonstrate that. But then the problem is, okay, if you have a well-founded belief, uh, we'd like to accommodate you if we can, but we need people who can be deployed. And if you can't be deployed, you may not be able to stay in the Air Force. So we're separating people uh, from that. That's where the majority of the ones we're looking at now. And we've got a few thousand people that are in that category that we're working through. Um, it's a very small fraction of the Air Force overall, so I'd be really surprised if our number of pilots was that high. Uh, I think it's much smaller than you show, quite frankly. Uh, sir, that, that's uh, estimates. I'll try, uh, to get you, I'll try to get you our number, see if it's... I would uh, love to see them uh, when they're available. And uh, this is, I'm going to make uh, Catherine, wherever you are, very unhappy because I'm going to take Abram Manchie's uh, question from the audience. Uh, thank you, sir. I'll just jump in real quick then. You said China, China, China. That's why you've come back, right? So can you tell us where Pacific Air Force stands in terms of refueling, ACE, base operations, I mean, base defense? And um, in the context of China's competition in the Pacific right now, as you know, sir, China is trying to sign uh, basing agreements with 10 Pacific Islands. So where does Pacific Air Force stand in terms of these uh, areas? And what do they need to do now? Thank you. I talked to Ken Wilsbach, the commander of Pacific Air Force, quite a bit. Um, he and I had a conversation about this the other day where I said, we basically, we agreed that we have made a good start at doing the right things, but we still have a ways to go. And that's why it's one of my seven operational imperatives, basically base resilience. The agile combat employment concept, which uh, the Air Force has adopted, is a very sound concept. It's essentially the idea that you don't just stay in one fixed base. You use multiple bases. You can think of it as a, a, a hub and, 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 and spokes around, basically, so that the adversary doesn't know where you are at any given point in time. Uh, you have a combination, uh, and, and we've done quite a bit to do exercises with that. We've done them both in Europe. Uh, as part of the getting ready for what we thought the Russians were going to do, and we've, done, and, and we've done them in the Pacific as part of building this up. Part of it is that you can operate from another airfield with a reduced uh, number of people because you cross-train your people in multiple disciplines. And we've made quite a bit of progress on that. We've exercised that. And we've used some of the alternative bases that could be available in the Pacific. Um, but we haven't done enough yet. So we've, we've, we've got to figure out what to put in the budget. And this is a fairly near-term win. We can do some things about that problem pretty quickly. Um, we, we do think we need a degree of deception so that the adversary doesn't know where to target. Uh, so we have to think about how we get that. It could involve decoys and, and other things to achieve that. Uh, we need a, a degree of defense. And if you can combine those two, then you want to have a defense that isn't going to be detected as well. And right now we don't really have that. So we're going to need to work with the Army to try to get, which is responsible for ground-based air defense, right? Um, we need hardening to some degree, and we need logistics facilities that can support what we want to do. So there's a list of things that have to happen to make it totally a reality. We're, we're down the path, but we've got a ways to go is a bottom line answer to your question. Does that get at what you want? 
Uh, I know of one agreement. I think that's with the Solomons, right? Um, so we have a lot of friends out in that region that we'll be working with. You know, Japan, obviously, where we're based now. Uh, we have Guam. We have islands that are in the vicinity of Guam. Um, you know, we, Australia, obviously, is a close, close partner. So we, we have other options besides the ones we talked about. But when, the tarts, when, you, when you do exercises, you need to go someplace that's, you know, can accommodate you very well. So that's what we've been doing so far. Mr. Secretary, it's been a great honor to have you here. Uh, one last uh, question. Will the B-21 fly this year? I don't think I can answer that. I think, uh, <laughs> I think the details of the B-21 are classified. Um, I've seen a press account on that, but I don't think I can give you an answer. Um, I, I, I was asked about this in a hearing, about the schedule for the B-21 House doing. Every acquisition program has a possibility to get in trouble. Development is hard. Yes, sir. It's, it's hard, it's difficult, and you always end up with things you didn't anticipate. Our average acquisition program in Department of Defense, which is again from my acquisition experience, overruns by 25% in cost and schedule comparably, right? Time and money kind of come together with development programs. So if our average overrun is 25%, but my goal was, and I had some success at this when I ran acquisition, was to get it down to something more like 15. So we should expect acquisition programs to have schedule slips up to a point. We should not accept the, expect things that they're like, let's say, the F-35, where you have years and years, right? Or the KC-46, right? The KC-46 was supposed to be a low-risk program. And I, I'll take the hit for that. We, we didn't look closely enough at the design. Boeing, you know, people are bidding, right? And they want to win, so they're going to tell you the best story they can. So we, we had a more risky uh, remote viewing station design than people realized at the time. And I, I wrote an article for Forbes about whether or not we should have, speculating, I don't know the right answer. I always held KC-46 up as the, the archetypical fixed price development program. You know, it met all my five requirements I had for fixed price development. And we still got in deep, big trouble on it. And we might not have if it had been a cost plus program and the government had supervised the contractor more aggressively. Uh, in a fixed price, you got to let the contractor kind of do what it wants because it's his, he's taking the risk associated with the cost. Anyway, uh, I'm sorry, I tend to get, get off on a channel. Love the, love the response. Uh, we are all but out of time. Do you have a really quick finale you want to close with, sir? Yeah, I mentioned how proud we all can be. Of our, we just have Memorial Day. I just did the, a breakfast at the White House with uh, Gold Star families and then went to Arlington Cemetery with the president, where he laid a wreath, and then uh, at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and then gave an address. And th th these are always moving things for me and for all the people involved. And I can tell you that as Americans, we should all be proud of our military. And one of the things I've really enjoyed about my career in defense is that there's always been a very strong bipartisan support for national security. And I think that continues. I think the American people want us to do what we need to do to keep our country safe and to protect our values and our democracy. And it's, it's sad for me to look at the division that we have in our country today. I wrote a piece for Forbes uh, before I came in about how President Biden's greatest challenge was going to be to convince Americans that half of Americans weren't evil, depending upon which side you think you're on. We're, uh, we're a country with strong values that are commonly shared. And the military really reflects that. We have a more diverse military than we've ever had before. And it's really just a privilege and an honor for me to be continuing you know, my stage of life to be associated with that. So I would thank you for your support for national security. Uh, it's, it's one area in which we really have to be united uh, over all others. So I appreciate what you do, and, and, and thank you all. Thank you, sir. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'll give you that.